Good morning, beloved. If you will, in your copy of Scripture, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Be in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at the first verse. You may have saw this in the news, but in August, um, just a few weeks back, a team of archaeologists in Poland dug up the remains of a female buried in isolation from, um, I believe it was the 17th century, they're thinking. And um, this female buried in isolation, that would be odd. Like, why not buried with other graves in a cemetery uh, or even a mass grave? Um, But she's buried in isolation. Some other oddities stood out were things like there was a padlock around some of her toes on one of her feet. And there was a sickle actually strategically placed over her neck in her burial. And the thought was, what they're conjecturing is, they thought she was a vampire. And so... In the case that she would spring back to life, she would be decapitated and unable to walk. Um, But yeah, death makes us uncomfortable. And something coming back from the dead is even more unnerving than just death itself. Uh, But what can the dead do to come to life? I remember my first pastoral encounter with death. As I got a phone call that someone in the church was, was... dying and uh, the family was gathering to say their final goodbyes and so forth. And so I show up at the facility and I remember it's my first time as a pastor. Um, I walk into the foyer of the facility and um, I'm greeted with kind of like a sad but not too sad piano playing in the foyer. As I walk in, um, there's just this kind of overwhelming, just hostile scent attacking me of It's a mixture between just an insane amount of sterilizing chemicals um, mixed with the flickering scented candles that line up the nurse's station there, Um, but then the just conspicuous scent of death that people here are dying. And so I walk into the room and the family is all gathered, but they're looking everywhere they can except at the dying old woman in the bed in the middle of the room. And I walk forward, not knowing exactly what to do, but I I just kind of grab the hand of this old lady and I listen as she's kind of like, there's this this song of the rhythm of her beating that can't keep beat. And you just wonder if every last gasp is really the last gasp and the song is going to end. And I noticed how as I stood there and held her hand as it became colder and colder, it was like the rest of the room that couldn't look over there, suddenly now that I'm between them and death, they could look a little more and come a little closer. I just remember thinking, this is so weird. This is so strange. It's such an odd thing. It's so unnatural. For something that is so unavoidable and predictable as a reality for us that death actually is, that we are all going to die, it is so unnatural. And it's truly such a terrible enemy. And I remember thinking, surely this is as bad as it gets. Like, I won't experience something worse than this. But over the course of years, I've sat with parents now who have lost children. And I realized I surely did not know it would get worse. And it surely did. As you sit as a parent and as a father to think, like, I want fullness of life for my children. And to have that robbed of them is such a terrible tragedy. It's such a terrible evil. And so I want us to carry that tension, the tension of death, into today's passage. And to be honest about the fact that death is not okay. 
As we come into this text, we pick up after a chapter that we've covered um, in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul has repeatedly made the statement of Father, the, the, the word Father, about God. And he, we've heard Paul call us to bless God and Father. He's, he's the one who's adopted us as sons. And our Father has blessed us, and so we're to bless our Father in heaven. We've heard Paul pray that our glorious Father would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him who was raised from the dead, is now seated at the right hand in the heavens. So it's Father God, Father God. He's petitioning Father God. He's saying, you are sons and daughters of God the Father. And now look at what he says of the Father's children. So pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, You're saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith and this not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. As we go through this passage, he starts off by saying, okay, children, children of God our Father, know this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That our former state, he uses the past tense there, and so remember in context, who has he addressed this letter to, this epistle? to the faithful saints, to those who are in Christ, who have salvation. And he expounds on that from 3 to 14. This is who you are. You are chosen. You're predestined. You're adopted. You're forgiven. You're blameless and holy in love before. This is who you are. You're sealed by the Spirit. He's going to complete what he began. This is who we are. We are saved. We have salvation from God. We are what we call Christians believers, followers of Jesus. And so that is who he is saying. You were, past tense, you were dead though. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived. We were dead. This is obviously not a physical death, but a spiritual death. That our sin separates us from God and God is life. And we have been separated from God in our sin. We were dead, nonetheless, we were dead. And dead people cannot communicate. Dead people cannot bring life to themselves. You cannot be dead and just decide, I would like to be alive and come to life. Dead people are dead. And throughout the years, many have tried to to kind of like reshape this and say like, you know, like imagine being on your deathbed and it's it's terminal illness. And so if, if somebody could just come in with the antidote and they'd give it and you would receive it gladly and all this stuff. Like, no, that's not what the text says. The text says you were dead. You were actually dead in your sins dead. Why were we dead? Because of those sins. Because of our rebellion against God that all have turned aside. No one seeks God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We have missed the mark. We have not lived according to the way that God said we ought to live. 
And we do this in a million ways every single day where God should be on the throne of our hearts and instead, I like to climb up there and take a seat on that throne. And I'll live for myself. And I'll decide what is right, what is wrong. I'll decide. I'll do all these things. And, and maybe it's not even me. Maybe I elevate my spouse or my job or my, my ambitions or whatever idol it is. I'll put all these things in the place of God and start to live for created things instead of the creator. That is sin. We have missed the mark. We have rebelled against God. And because of that, we were spiritually dead. This rebellion against the holy God. And Paul's saying here that it actually puts us in alignment with a few things. He says, alignment with the ways of the world. That means we live for what is temporal in this age. The ways of the world, it's what is here and now. It's hedonism in a material sense. It's what can I get while the getting's good. What can I amass? What kind of treasure can I bring about? What all these things, like it's here and the now. I want comfort and security and prestige, this posture and position, my identity, wrapped up in so many things that we're living for today. It's the system of the world, the ways of the world. So it's according to the ruler of the power of the air. As we read further into the book, um, you'll see that Paul actually now makes explicit, or later makes explicit that he's referring to Satan here. The Satan, actually, would be more accurate. This is a position that we refer to as the devil or Satan or Lucifer. This is the accuser who stands opposed to God and opposed to all of God's people. And so we were actually living under his rule, and it calls him the ruler of the power of the air, which is very odd in our minds. And you think, why, why is he called that? As so you think, well, the air, as we look around, we know that there's the earth underneath us and the air above us. And yet we can't see the air, but we know it's there. And so in the same way, Satan, we don't see him, yet we know he's here, and he's ruling over this earth. He's been bound and all this stuff, and yet he's still roaring and prowling about, seeking whom he can devour. And so once we were living under the ruler of the power of the air, it says also the spirit now working in the disobedient, that's spirit as in like attitude or our posture, our rebellious hearts. Just disobedience, to be against God, to be the enemy of God at one point. We were dead in that. And he says, verse three, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. See, he's further distinguishing. This was us. Remember, this was us. These fleshly desires refers to, again, the temporal, the corrupt. We know our brokenness in the embodied existence. And we know that that came about because of our sin. Our rebellion, our sin against God, justly incites wrath. God rightly, because of his love actually, he rightly has wrath for those who stand against him. And that was us. In our former state, we were in the crosshairs of God's just wrath. There's a penalty, there's a cost to our rebellion. And that is who we were, that is who we were just like it is how so many are still today. To be dead in sin. And again, what can dead people do to come to life? Nothing. Dead men cannot make themselves alive. But look at what he says in verse 4. But God... But God, in the midst of our deadness, 
when we could do nothing and we were actually the enemy of God, living under the dominion of Satan, the accuser, the one who opposes God and his people. When we were there, God says, but, but, no, 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 that's not the end of the story. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. This word, but, means that a change is taking place. God is introduced into the story, and it's introduced as being rich in mercy. God, but God, who is rich in mercy. And so when you think of God, do you immediately think, he's rich in mercy? Oh, you must. You must. You do not know him if you do not know that God is rich in mercy. If all you can think of God is, oh, this angry man who's over it all, just oppressing us, and all these, no, God, core to his being, he is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. What is this mercy? It's defined by the Oxford Dictionary as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. God has every right to punish us for our sin. He has every right to condemn us, to have just wrath for us. But instead, he is merciful. He is full of mercy, full of mercy that he has the right to punish, to execute judgment on us. And yet he withholds that. He is merciful. He has mercy. And so see the contrast here that he, God, made us alive and we were dead. That Paul's saying, hey, we were dead, but he made us alive. And then he cannot help but have this outburst. You see the exclamation point. You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. Do you know what grace means? It's undeserved or unmerited favor. That God loves us. He has favor for us when we don't deserve it because we were dead. What can dead men do to deserve favor? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But he is merciful. And he has grace for us. We're saved by grace. We are not justified by our merit, but by Christ's merit. That's why Jesus came. And God the Son, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit throughout all of eternity. He has always been God. But God the Son took on human flesh in the incarnation. Jesus was born of a virgin. And by being born of a virgin, he did not have Adam's sin imputed to him. He is the sinless son of God. And yet now, fully God and fully man, he lives a sinless life as a true human. He did not break the law. He did not stray away. He kept it fully. And by his merit, we have been saved, not our own merit. He was the perfect human. And then he died the sacrificial death that we needed as a true human who was sinless, the perfect once final for all sacrifice. He died so that we would not have to. And this is how God showed us mercy. This is how we are saved by grace, that he has grace for us, this undeserved, unmerited favor for us based on the merit of Christ, that he has done this for us. And why? Why would he do such a thing? Always look back in the text. Look back in the text. What does it say? But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. Why would God do any of this? This is why. Beloved, because you were loved. How do you know that in your sin, in your failing, in your doubting, in all of your weakness? Do you know that there's a God who is reigning over it all, who sees you individually, and he has love for you? 
so much love for you that it actually incites him to action, that he would come and be our salvation, the cost of his own life. And now verse six says, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is now our position. As believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, those who have put our faith, our trust in him, that he has raised us up with Christ. You know, Christ ascended. He was resurrected from the dead and then later he ascends back to heaven. The cloud rider. This is a reference back, an allusion to Daniel. As Daniel once saw the cloud rider, the ancient of days, he's standing there on the throne or seated on the throne and this one like a man comes up and comes before him. Jesus is this one who ascends back to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Paul's saying, we actually have been raised up with him. This believer is now your position. You were seated in the heavenlies with Christ and not just with Christ, but in Christ. It's our union with Christ that is our salvation. That on the cross, we died with him. And then in his resurrection, we too were raised to life as well. And one day we'll physically be resurrected as well. And he will consummate all of this, what has begun. We have this promise, this down payment, this remember the spirit has sealed us and yet one day it would all be complete. And he will see that to completion. And this is our position to be in the heavens, but in Christ. We have this standing, we have this power because of our union with Christ. We have this great blessing and yet we will have it. It is already and it is not yet. It's our reality, but it's not fully realized. Just how much this immeasurable riches of the kindness of God in Christ are for us that he wants to display. And I love that it says that he wants to display it. We have this salvation by grace for this future display of immeasurable grace. And do you see what he did there? It's you have been saved or you are saved by grace. It has happened and it is happening. The tenses are shifting. You have been saved and you are saved by grace. You currently are being saved still by grace. And then yet he's pointing to the future saying that this immeasurable riches of his grace, he wants to display. Here's the thing, look at me. You will never graduate from grace. If you get bored because every week our sermons come back to the gospel of grace, you have missed it. You should never grow bored with this. You never graduate from this. Grace is at the heart of everything we must know about how God relates to us. That he loves us when we don't deserve to be loved. And he's making us lovely, not because of anything in us, but because of his grace. That he delights in us, not because we are inherently delightful, but because he has made us such. And that is grace. He has done that. He is doing that. And he will do that forever. He wants to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness through Christ. This is amazing that God wants to display this to us. He wants the riches of his grace to be made visible. I remember falling in love with my wife and we were dating and we dated for some years and and so it, it had been enough years that like I knew when I proposed to her, it can't just be like, will you marry me? Like, you know, Chipotle, nice little meal here. How's this going to go? Like I knew, I knew I needed, I needed to make it special. And so um, I probably, I definitely undid myself because I'll never live up to it again. But I spent a long time, like months of planning that I knew 
I, I've got to make this over the top. And so my family was going to be on vacation in the Keys, and I was like, why don't you come to the Keys with us? We'll keep it kosher. She's going to have her own room and all this stuff. But, you know, so she's going to come on vacation with my family. And I actually befriended the owners of a private island resort. Like, spent hours on the phone just, like, warming them up, you know? And, and like, I'm telling like, I'm going to propose to my girlfriends. Like, I, I just, I, I don't have a lot of money, but I really like to make this special. Okay, so here's what happens. We go to this, we're, we're down in the lower keys. Um, we have to go to the office where they have a wooden yacht come pick us up. And you had to dress up. Like, you're not allowed on the island unless you're super dressed up. So we're dressed up. She didn't bring a dress, and I couldn't, like, ruin it by saying, like, you need to bring a nice dress on vacation. Like, so I put her in there. Like, we're going on a date tonight. I drive off, and I pull into this place. It's called Anthony's Ladies Clothing, something like that. And so we pull in there. I was like, hey, you actually need a dress for where we're going. And so I buy her a dress. She goes to the dressing room, gets dressed. She comes out. We go down, and we show up at this office. There's a little dock, and they've got a wood yacht, like old, cool wooden yacht that's been restored, and they take us on that yacht out to this private island. You can only get there by boat or seaplane. We go out to this island, and it is gorgeous. They've got tiki torches lit and everything on the dock that's to greet you, like seaplanes, like this is rich people stuff. And I'm like, yeah, living it up and everything. <laughs> It cost me like $130. Don't tell her. She's right there. <laughs> but we, we get here, and they have, made, they have made us our very own private beach table away from everyone. And they've got multiple servers coming out, giving us the best of the best and all this stuff, and it's amazing. Key deer come swimming up out of the water. They're eating bread out of her hand. Like, it's amazing. And why do I do this? Because I want to show her this is how much I love you. Because I want you to see. I want you to see it. This is how much I love you. And so as I propose to you and ask you to take on my name for the rest of your life, I want you to know it's because I love you this much. And in fact, I've got this silly rock that's been pressurized and all this stuff, and now it's glowy and pretty and all this stuff, and I can't afford a lot of it, but I've spent months talking to a jeweler that's in a family connection, and I'm like, this is what I can do. And he's like, well, if you give me enough time, I can probably find a good enough deal. Like, it can't be huge, but I want it to be like the best that it can be in what I've got. And I pull that ring out and I give it to her as I propose to her. Why? Because I want you to see how much I love you. And now you're going to put that on your hand and you're never going to take it off and you're never going to put a glove on and you're going to take photos of it and you're going to share it on all those little social media things because I want the world to see this is how much I love you. And do you know that that's God? You have been saved by grace. You are saved by grace. It's in the past, it's in the present, and then in the future, he's going to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. He wants to display how much he loves you. That forever, he wants you to see this. He wants the world to look on and say, they are so loved. And that should be so compelling as the world sees you. They should see how much just being marked by the love of God has changed everything for you. That they say, I want to be in on that. I can be loved like that. What do I have to do? And we say, it's grace. You can't do anything. You just put your faith in the one who did it all for you. Because you were dead, but you were brought to life by grace. It's all by grace. And he wants to show us this. So look at verse 8. 
It says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. If it wasn't clear enough already, just in the words that are used, let's make it even more clear. You are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. You are saved. It's not just that you've been saved, but it's by grace. It's God has done it. It is entirely grace. And and so it's by grace, and then it's through faith. This is our response. This is what we do, and it's totally not us really doing anything. It's It's this through faith. It's just trusting. It's believing. He has done this. I believe what God has said about me is true. That he has come and he has lived a sinless life. His name was Jesus. He is the Lord. I confess him as Lord. And I turn from my sin because he came around preaching, repent, turn from your sin. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so I see I'm a broken sinner. And I'm in desperate need of a salvation because wrath is real. There's a just consequence for my sins. And I need to be saved from that. And I cannot do that on my own. I cannot be good enough. I cannot work enough to receive the salvation, but I can receive it freely. It's a gift from God by just believing, by having faith, or more modern terms, trust. Trust him. Trust him to be who he said he is and to have done what he did, that he died for you and he rose again so that we could have life everlasting. So turn from your sin, confess him as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The promise of scripture is you shall be saved. It's as sure as that. You will be saved. And this boasting of self is entirely excluded. Again, take none of the credit. Kevin is not awesome. Kevin did not earn any of this. Any of the immeasurable riches of grace, the immeasurable riches of his kindness, the the wealth, the inheritance that we have in heaven that is mine, I didn't earn any of it. And so all glory goes to God, that he has done it for me. It is grace. Uh, my son and I watched, uh, there's, a, there's a version of the, the famous book. It was actually said that it's the second most popularly sold book aside from the Bible and the history of the world. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, John Bunyan, just brilliant mind, while he was in prison for his faith, he wrote this book. It's called A Pilgrim's Progress. And there's, a, there's an animated version that my son and I watched uh, last week. As we're watching it, you know, this guy who lives in this um, just kind of anti-God, just this city of despair, all this stuff. He's, he's here and he's living and there, there are all these, there's a hierarchy of authority that are trying to keep the people oppressed and blind to the reality of, of this celestial city. And so one day um, he hears about somebody leaving, he's escaped, and they're, and they're like, oh, he's dead. He left the city. He's dead. He's a goner. Um, don't be influenced by that, but we need to go clean out his house. And um, Long story short, he finds what in the, in the parallel, this is all an allegory, is a copy of scripture. And he starts to believe the things that are written in this book. And it leads him to actually make this pilgrimage. He's making progress as he leaves the city and is headed towards the celestial city. And he's believing what the king wrote in the book. And as he goes out and he's just kind of confused, like, what am I doing? Where am I going? And he meets this guy who, like, super creative, but he's called the evangelist. And the evangelist is this other guy who's a pilgrim and, and he comes along and, and shares the good news and he helps him. And so in the parallel, the gospel has been introduced to this guy whose name is Christian. I know, it's right on the nose. <laughs> Christian has now heard the gospel and he believes the gospel. 
And so he goes further on this pilgrimage. And as he's going and he encounters all these hardships and trials and different things, like there's various points when evangelist shows up again. And my son is trying to like stay on tune with everything. He's like, so what does that mean? What's this and all this stuff? And, and, and I can see the confusion as evangelist keeps showing up to tell him the gospel. I think, but that's, that's us. And this is why we preach the gospel every single week. And this is why you need to hear the gospel every single day of your life. Because in the words of Paul Tripp, it's like we have gospel amnesia, that we forget this. That you need the gospel every day. You start to question, you feel the weight of death or sin or anything else and struggling with all these different things. And what do you need? You need to hear the gospel of grace again. You need to believe the gospel of grace all the more. And it's not that we have fallen from salvation. It's that we just never graduate from grace. And we need to hear it. We need the evangelist to come back in and say, hey, but did you know that God so loves the world? He sent his only son that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Everlasting life. Do you believe? Or will you make that your confession? And so often what we need to do, beloved, is sit in circles and have conversations. And when there's any kind of doubt, just simply say, hey, what's your confession of Jesus? What do you mean, what's my confession? Just, no, I want to hear you say it. Who is he? Well, Jesus is the Lord. Amen. Yes. Say it again. Say it again. Who is Jesus? He's my king. Yes, yes, yes. Say it again. Who is Jesus? Oh, he's my salvation. You just hear it. And you need to say it. Because we never graduate from the gospel. We never graduate from grace. We need to hear it and know that all of our boasting is excluded. We boast only in the Lord, that he has done this for us. He is mighty to save. And so let's all be the evangelist, showing up to those who don't yet know him, but even to each other. Do you know the gospel? Can we talk about the gospel? Who is the Lord? Let's repeat it over and over and over. And verse 10, he wraps up this portion. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. His workmanship. And do you see the beauty to go from, you were dead. You were the enemy of God. You're actually living in alignment with this, the ways of the world, the ruler of the power of the air, this, this spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Like, that was us, dead, in rebellion against God. But what did he make us? By grace, his workmanship, his masterpiece. The, the idea is an artist pouring everything they've got into making something beautiful, compelling, just glorious. That God would make us his workmanship. Saved not by good works, but for good works. And so don't miss the order here. We are not saved by our good works, but for good works. Good works do matter. Because if you tell me that you have salvation and we see no fruit of that, then we have to ask, do you have salvation? And that the works are not to merit salvation, but they're the outgrowth of salvation. They're the product of the salvation. That he prepared these for us. They're not even really ours. They're his. He dreamed them up. God said, you are going to do these good things. Jesus actually left saying, like, it's good that I go away. I'm going to send the helper and you're actually going to do even better things. How could we do even greater things than what Jesus did? Because he is actually the one empowering it all. It's still grace that we are going to walk in them as opposed to work in them. 
It does not say you're going to work in them. It says you're going to walk in them. The idea of walking in them is that you're immersed in this. It's his grace. It's his power. And we get to just be part of that and submitting to him and carrying out what he has established for us to do. Oh, that's so beautiful. There's still no boasting. It's still all glory to God. And so I want to ask you, what are the works that he prepared for you to walk in? Christian, what are the works, the good works that he actually prepared for you to walk in? And are you walking in them? And when's the last time that you just took a moment to quiet your mind and heart and say, God, what are the works that you would have me walk in today? What would you have me do? And listen. And then obey. Let's do this. Look for these opportunities. Listen for these opportunities. But let's walk in these good works that he prepared for us to walk in. As it all comes down to this, the gospel is that God gives us life. And you go back to this idea that in chapter one, he's repeatedly referred to God the Father. And this idea that we're supposed to relate to him as such. And Jesus on his, on his ministry here for three years publicly was just revolutionizing things with how personal he made reference to God. Father, Father, Father. In fact, the only time that he doesn't directly speak to God the Father and call him Father is when he's on the cross dying. And he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took our place to be rejected, to be forsaken, to be condemned so that we would not, so that we could actually have his righteousness given to us, not freely to him, but freely for us, the cost of his life so that we could have life evermore. So will you trust him? Will you believe him? Will you see that the gospel is that God gives us life? We have been taken from death to life and that is because of his great love, this father who had dead children, who could do nothing to raise themselves back to life. And he said, I can do that. And it's gonna cost my own son's life so that all my children could have life forevermore. And so would you come to him, see his love for us, that while we were dead, he sent his son to face death so that we could come to life. Will you believe this gospel? Will you rejoice in this gospel? And will you share this gospel? So for the skeptic, I don't know if any of this is true. The seeker, I want to know what's true. The stumbling saint, struggling, stuck in sin. The doubting saint, wondering if you just made a bad decision in believing this. And can you pull that back a little? Will you believe this good news? That it's not what you can do. It's entirely what he has done. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works. No one can boast. It's what God has done. He is our salvation. He provides this. As a follower of Jesus, those good works that you're to walk in, you know, one of those is the call to every one of us to take this gospel, this good news, to every nation. And that starts with your actual neighbor and your actual coworker and your family, your friends, the people that you encounter throughout South Lake County. Will you be obedient, and give glory to God in heaven by walking in these good works that he prepared. Share this good news. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that our salvation is entirely secured by you. 
thank you for your grace. Thank you that you've loved us when we do not deserve to be loved. You're amazing. You're, you're so wondrous that you would love us like this, that it would be such a great cost that your son, Father, would die so that we could have life. So give us faith, Spirit. Convict us of sin. Help us to walk in your ways. And to know that every day that can be empowered just, just hearing, believing, seeing your love, this grace, this good news that you provide salvation. And so we give you all the glory because we cannot boast in any of it, but we'll boast in you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen.